So some of you will remember that just a few weeks ago, uh, I delivered a sermon on dating. Remember that? And you might also remember that one of the first things I said was, I'm not an expert and I have much to learn about dating considering I'd been married for 14 years. And even before that, I, only, I got married at like 25, almost 26, which meant I had two to five years less experience than the average bear with dating anyway. So this week, as I prepare to speak about parenting, I am well aware that my child is not yet four months old. So there's more than a few things about being a parent that I haven't experienced. So in preparation for this moment, I took time to do what any good parent would do, and I went to a trustworthy source, source, gotoquiz.com, and took a quiz to find out what type of parent I would be, because it assumed I wasn't a parent yet, to find out if I'm qualified today to speak to you. So I answered the 10 questions that would give me this answer, and I got 20%. Along with this message, you are not the best parent. (laughs) You need to become a better parent before you actually have children. Look at the answers to see what you got wrong. So I went back and I looked at the answers and more bad news. Apparently, the one question I got right, I got credit for twice because it was listed twice meaning that I'm not a 20% parent, I am an 11% parent, having gotten one out of nine questions correct. However, this may be sour grapes, but I think it's all a trick, this go-to quiz stuff, because if you're really going to go to quiz to decide if you're ready to be a parent, you are not. <laughs> so and besides, the, uh, the horse is already out of the barn with me, there's no going back, I am a parent, so... What I'm trying to say is that I'm talking about a big topic today. I don't expect to know everything about being a parent. Um, I don't expect in less than four months I could have learned everything about being a parent. I don't even expect that having looked at the scriptures and taught from the Bible for decades that I'm going to know everything there is to know about being a parent. But it seems to me that this is an important topic. And right now we're just in week two of our series called Legacy, Outliving Your Life. And we're talking about how we can live, how we can invest in things that are the most important, that will carry on after us. And what I'm finding again and again, as when I talked about dating a few weeks ago, is that the things that seem to make the biggest difference in human relationships almost always universally apply across the board. Now, the applications might be a little different for a parent as opposed to someone who is dating and those types of relationships, but they're human relationships. Also, I know around this room, there's quite a few parents, but not everyone here is a parent. Now, most of us probably will be a parent of some sort to someone at some point, but not everybody. And for some of you today, I know you're thinking, wow, yeah, maybe someday, but that is a long way off, and I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Let me just say, I think what we talk about today is going to go far beyond what it means to be a good parent, just to be what it means to be a healthy person and have healthy relationships but we're going to use parenting as a lens to learn those things universally. Does that make sense? So don't check out. Just like married people, you didn't check out on me a few weeks ago when we talked about dating. And I think, of course, I did promise I was going to talk about sex in that talk, so that was probably a little extra to keep you in there. But if you're not a parent, you don't ever want to be a parent, um, or you think you might never be a parent, there's going to be a lot for you. So let's do it. 
Let's read our passage. Before we do, a moment of prayer for this 11% parent. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here. Pray that you would give us all something of worth today. I pray you'd show us something of who you are, and something of what it means to be human, something of what it means to live by the Spirit of God and to follow Jesus. We welcome you into this time and pray for your grace. Amen. So let me read a story to you. And I'll tell you right off the bat, this is a completely different context than any of you live. So you're going to hear this, and there's going to be things you'll be, what? That's all right. We're going to talk about some of that moving forward. But I think uh, this passage has some real gold for us uh, to mine about what it means to be a healthy person and a good parent and have good relationships. This is taken from 1 Samuel. It's 24 verses from the first chapter. It says, When the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, excuse me, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to, to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Just what she needed here, right? <laughs> not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled, and I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went on her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him up and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed home and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. And after his wean, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So, I think there's a lot that stands out in this passage. I mean, some of you, I can see you, you're like, what? I'm getting the, what was that thing from April last week, the side eye? 
Whatever. I'm getting some side eyes here, but probably the thing that stands out the most is that Hannah, who'd been praying for a son for years and years, um, takes her son and gives her son quite literally to the Lord. She leaves him at probably the age of two or three years old at the house of the Lord. Now, let me just say this. There's a few things you should know about Samuel. Things actually work out great for Samuel. So Samuel turns out to be a terrific person, a very secure person, a very whole person. Not only that, he's a person who hears the voice of the Lord probably like no one else in that day. Samuel actually becomes the prophet of Israel, the main prophet, who settles disputes for people, travels about uh, the nation of Israel, uh, casting judgments. He was like a traveling judge. And he's the person who anoints the first two kings of Israel. So he has tremendous power and God takes care of him. He turns out to be a very whole, healthy, and as far as we can tell, happy, fulfilled person. Even so, this is an extreme act of trust that Hannah takes here. And nowhere else in the Bible or in the scriptures do we see someone literally leave their child at the house of the Lord. So this is an exceptional act. It's not something that happened all the time or that is encouraged as a way to be a good parent normally. This is something out of the ordinary. All that being said, it's really hard to imagine, isn't it? You know, my friend, my friend, I'm about to talk about my friend. Listen, when my friend Becca first got pregnant, when, <laughs> sometimes you're, you're looking ahead, you know, when my wife Becca first got pregnant, my friend Wayne, who's on my softball team, talked to me and said, you know, everything's going to change when you have this kid. He said, the moment you see that kid, uh, it won't matter. You will run in front of a bus for that child, I promise you. Guaranteed. And you know what? I, I believed him at the time. I thought, oh, sure, because even before Declan was born, there was a connection. I love that kid already. But when I saw him, things certainly took on a new level of commitment and meaning. Becca calls this experience uh, her mama bear instincts. You know, a, a few examples of this. I wasn't present for this one, but apparently uh, during Declan's first bath, Grandma was in town, my mom, and he was in the bathtub, and Grandma decides to sit on the side of the bathtub, not realizing that she was sitting on the shower curtain, which then caused the shower curtain rod to come loose. And apparently, Becca exercised her bear, mama bear, or spidey senses, and without even looking, (laughs) (laughs) caught the pole before it smashed our son in the forehead, right? Just last week, we're out, we're walking through the park, nice day, you know, a little walk and getting out there before it gets too cold, and I'm tooting along, I'm crossing Baltimore Avenue, and I don't see, like by the curb, this really big hole, and the wheel of the stroller catches in that, and I lose all balance. I'm starting to, I didn't quite leave my feet, but I'm like falling over out of control. Uh, the, the stroller is about to topple. I'm about to topple over it, and we don't know where Declan's going to go. And Becca reaches out and catches my 190-pound frame and puts me back down, basically. Mama bear instincts, papa bear instincts, the protective urge of a parent is huge, and it never goes away. I mentioned, I think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago, just a disappointing relationship that I've had with someone who was my mentor for years. 
that I'm not sure if he ever wants to talk to me again. And I was talking to my mom about this a while ago. And, um, you know, it's interesting because she, I could hear tears in her voice. You were on the phone. And what she said to me was, no matter how old you get, your kids are still your kids, and you don't want to see them hurt. Yet Hannah, who'd been waiting, hoping, pleading for a child, gives him to the Lord for someone else to be the primary caregiver. She won't be there to be mama bear. But she's able to trust that the God who was good enough to give her a son is also good enough to care for him. And I wonder if the lesson for us here is that with our children or with the ones who matter the most to us, we're encouraged to trust what's most important to God. Meaning there comes a time in any healthy relationship where we have to give up control and trust. Now, this is hard to do when it concerns people that we love, particularly our children. I read this article this week. It, it was an interview well, with a woman named Julie Lifcott Hames. And for 11 years, I believe, she was the dean of freshmen at Stanford University. So she was interacting uh, with students the first year they were away from home, usually. And she remarked that with all of the information that's available to people these days, the instances of what she called helicopter parenting is going through the roof. She says, people are scared. She said, we act as if child abduction could happen on every street corner. Another influence is the self-esteem movement. A kid slides down a slide and we say, perfect. A kid draws on a piece of paper and we say, perfect. Perfect has become a rhetorical tick. Kids come away with this overblown sense of their own capability and they think they have to be perfect all the time. Then, sometimes wither under the expectation when they realize that they're not. And the solution, she goes on, it's a long interview, it's worth reading, but the solution she, she suggests is to let our children or the people that we love feel the pain of failure and disappointment. She says, you don't structure a controlled environment for failure. You back off. When children experience a setback, they don't know Oh, they don't know their homework assignment. That's not your problem to solve. The best way for a kid to learn is to have that uncomfortable feeling, to experience consequences that are tiny in the grand scheme of things. Some will say, these are, she's a little bold and she says, these are her words. She says, some will say something idiotic like, oh, my kid's drowning. I'm just supposed to turn around. Of course not. Where your child is in a situation potentially damaging to life and limb, of course you're going to protect them. The trouble is, we're acting like everything is life or death. And she finished the interview by saying this, our parents, or our job as parents, is to put ourselves out of a job, period. We're not meant to parent them for the duration of their lives, or ours. Our job is to ensure that they have the skills, the confidence to fend for themselves, we will always love them, but the most loving thing is to prepare them for adulthood rather than pretend that we will always be there to resolve things for them. 
You know, Melissa and I have been talking over the past year about what type of 18-year-old we hope to produce as a community. You know, uh, Melissa is the overall coordinator of our children's ministry. And we talk about, so if someone's in our church for a decent number of years as a young person, who do we want to produce? What do we want them to be like? And one of the things we said is we want to produce young adults that have a way of viewing faith that prepares them for the rest of their lives. And part of that is creating an expectation for struggle, hard times, and disappointments. You know, I have met so many people, and you probably have too, particularly for some reason here in West Philadelphia, that grew up sometimes in very conservative homes. You know, often very conservative Christian homes that now that they're in West Philadelphia have kind of pitched their faith entirely. You know anyone like that? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're even kind of on the edge there. And there are lots of reasons that happens, but a big one is simply that something went wrong. And because something went wrong in their life, they feel like their faith was a fraud. It didn't protect them or deliver what was promised. But one thing I think we need to realize is that's that's not the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is that you can do everything right and end up dead. Isn't it? You can treat everyone exactly how they should be treated and they betray you. You can trust God with your whole heart and end up on a cross. That's the story. That's what is modeled, isn't it? Jesus believed, I think, as well as anyone can believe, trusted, I think, as well as anyone can trust it, can trust. And he ended up on a cross. That's where it led him. In a time of extreme tribulation. And deep faith, faith that lasts, faith that is substantial, understands this. And at some point lives through this. Christian theologians have sometimes referred to this as the second half of life. Faith after fire, faith after a struggle, faith after disappointment, faith after tragedy. The French philosopher Paul uh, Rocour had a similar idea. He called what we're aiming for here the second naivete, which sounds fancy, but it just means a second innocence, a second trusting. Here's what I think that means. The, the first naivete is what many of you have experienced. This experience of coming to faith, experiencing Jesus in a real way for the first time, and that blowing your mind. That exploding everything in your life with new life. That thing happening, you want to tell everyone about it. It's like everything you ever hoped you just discovered was true. And that's an awesome experience. I think it's important. It's healthy. It's helpful. But 
where we go from there is into a real world where we live a real life. Time passes, life hits, people get sick, some people die, people break up with you, some people might cheat on you. You face tremendous setbacks at work, or worse. And at that point, usually, I might be missing something, but it seems to me that there are three responses we can have. One is we double down on that first experience, and we refuse to accept or deal with what's actually happening in our life. And the people around us who try and point out where it's not lining up, we get angry at, and we minimize, or we discount, and we dig in to our first perspectives on faith and try and make them work whether they do or not. That's one option. The second, and I've seen this a lot, a lot of my friends are in this place, you just, you pitch it. This isn't what you ordered. This isn't what you expected. Life has proven faith in Jesus to be false. And it's better just to join the cynics and move on. It's sad and sometimes as devastating even as that can be, it's a realization that some people come to. A third approach, the one I'd like us all to consider and I'm hoping we can embrace is to walk with Jesus. To realize that he was betrayed, that he was disappointed, that he was crucified His walk of faith and trusting his Father in heaven was complicated, was messy, was disappointing for him. To the point where one time he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that. But ultimately, it was also a life that was redeemed, that was resurrected, that was renewed powerfully. This understanding, this approach, this is what I want for Declan. This is what I want the kids in our church to understand. This is what I want you to understand. This is the story we've been given by Jesus and none other. Jesus said, you will have trouble here. He promised. But it's connected to holding on to following Jesus through the worst things in life and finding resurrection, renewal, redemption on the other side. And that's where deep faith lives. That's where the world gets bigger. Instead of doubling down on that first experience and making that all there is, that's the world getting smaller and smaller but leaning into the pain, through the pain, finding Jesus in the pain, understanding it's part of the story that he promised us and he lived to the point where you can then experience resurrection, renewal, new perspective. The world gets bigger. It's more mystical how it all works together, but it does. And while I so want to protect Declan from ever experiencing any of those things, at some point, I have to give up control 
and trust that God can love him, develop him, carry him, and open the world up to him, even through pain, even through disappointment. And what I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about trading control for depth. Depth in maturity and relationship with God, but also depth in the relationship that we can have with other people. And particularly for me, I think about this in depth in the relationship that I want to have with Declan. Since the main imagery we're using here is that of parenthood, one of the things that I have, I don't, I just started praying from when Declan was first born was that we would always be able to talk. That's important to me. I want to know Declan when he's 25, like know him. I want to be involved in his life. I want to have conversations. You know, this past week I met with some out-of-town pastors and we did this prayer exercise where you're supposed to think of, uh, we, we did this with a, a happy memory that we have and then we prayed through that and asked Jesus, where were you in that? And we did that. Well, my friend's happy memory was just uh, a couple weeks ago when uh, he was driving with his son on this trip, like a five-hour road trip. And his son was basically just telling him everything about his life. And it was a follow-up to an earlier conversation where, like a week earlier, his son apparently wasn't a big dater in high school. Now he's a freshman in college, and there's this girl he's interested in, and he finds out she's interested in him. So who does he call? His parents. Never happened to me. (laughs) And he talks to his parents about what he should do. And then he tells his friends. And his friends are like, are you crazy? You talk to your parents? And I guess apparently they just got a hot tub. And they're all sitting around the hot tub. Extra detail for you. And uh, his friends, they all turn to him. And one by one, they had this presupposition that the only point to dating someone in college was to score. And so they're like, why did you tell your parents about this girl? And then his other friend was sitting there who kind of growing up with him a little bit and gone to church with him. He's like, you don't get it. He's like, uh, at their church, his dad's a pastor, it's not about getting in trouble or not. And I think there's some insight there that in their church and even in their father-son relationship, he wasn't trying to control him, but he was trusting him. And so his son could be honest about things, not worried about getting in trouble. I want that. I want to talk. By the way, his son wasn't just trying to score, just so you know. (laughs) There's more to the story, but I'll leave it at that. I want that with my son. I want depth, not control. I would rather have depth in our relationship than control him or our relationship because I'd rather connect to him than control him. That's true in relationships in general. To have depth in relationships with anyone, you have to get rid of control. What's that cliche, if you love someone, let them go? Cheesy, yes, but there's some truth to that. If you want to have a good, healthy relationship where you know each other and you're not guarded, you don't have to protect yourself, you have to trust You have to let people make bad decisions sometimes. Sometimes they have to suffer the consequences. Sometimes it's you who does that. 
So I know in my life, eventually, as in all relationships, I'll need to back off. I think there's a little bit more we can learn here. Another thing I think we can see um, from Hannah is that it's important to model what you hope. In verse 28, she says this. She says, now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, it's interesting, for whatever reason, I grew up in the church, so I heard this story really young. I always assumed, that, oh, yeah, Eli worships because now he has Samuel. But if you read it in context, first of all, he's just a little boy. And Samuel's probably thinking, what, I got to take care of this kid? <laughs> he's probably not like worshiping. It's Samuel that worships. Two or three years old. I don't know what it looked like. But where's a two or three year old learn how to worship? got to be from Hannah, right? And if you read this story, she's certainly praying and pouring her heart out to God all the time. The next chapter is just a recorded song of Hannah where she just prays for stanzas and stanzas and worships God. And in just two or three years, she had imparted that, modeled that already to her son. And what's amazing is that Samuel... He not only picks up what his mother models to him by worshiping God in this moment, but he becomes an historic worshiper of God beyond what Hannah could have ever imagined. He is the prophet of Israel eventually. He hears the voice of God like you would hear a human voice. First time it happens, he thinks Eli is calling him. It's a great story. It's actually the voice of the Lord saying, Samuel, get up. He thinks it's Eli. So even what she models for him in the best way she knows how, it's like the Holy Spirit seizes on that, builds it into him, and then, and here's what I think is the hope for us, takes it to the next level. So that's what I'm hoping for us is that what we model to our children and even our friends people we're in relationship with. If we do it in hope, imperfectly, I'm sure, then we can let God take it to the next level, even beyond what we hoped. Now, some friends this week um, were talking about, maybe you saw this, they were talking about an interview with Joe Biden that was on uh, the Colbert show, a late show with Colbert. Anyone see this or hear about this? It, it kind of got some... Uh, uh, virality to it. it kind of went a little bit viral on the internet because it was so honest and open and you don't expect um, politicians to be so heartfelt or talk show hosts for that matter and they have this conversation um, and part of the reason is because Joe Biden's talking about the passing of his son Bo and in the interview Stephen mentions the remarks that President Obama made in his eulogy remembering Bo Biden let me read them to you this is what Obama said at his funeral he said It's no secret that a lot of what made Bo the way he was was just how much he loved and admired his dad. He studied law like his dad, even choosing the same law school. He chased public service like his dad, believing it to be a noble and important pursuit. From his dad, he learned how to get back up when life knocked him down. He learned that he was no higher than anybody else and no lower than anybody else, something he got something Joe got from his mom, by the way. And he learned how to make everybody else feel like we matter 
because his dad taught him that everybody matters. He even looked and sounded like Joe, although I think Joe would be the first to acknowledge that Bo was an upgrade. Joe 2.0. But as much as Bo reminded folks of Joe, he was very much a man of his own. He was an original. Now, I want to show you the way that uh, Vice President Biden responded to Colbert. Uh, it, I want to tell you, it's, I think it's pretty powerful and kind of emotional, but I don't want the, and that's great, and it's heartfelt, but I don't want you to lose what he's saying in the midst of, in the midst of how you might feel. Um, but let's just take a peek at this interview. Vice President, there's, there's another reason I think that people uh, admire you and like you, is that you're a man of substance. People know that you have experienced tragedies in your life, and we are inspired by the way that you have responded to those. And, and for myself, and I think, uh, I suspect for millions of people out there, I, I'd like to offer my condolences for the loss of your son, Bo. Um, I know that he was a great man, and um, I was hoping you could tell us a story about him. The, the president, in his eulogy, called your son... Joe 2.0, in what way is that a compliment to you? You know, my dad had an expression. He used to say, you know your success as a parent when you turn and look at your child and realize they turned out better than you. I was a hell of a success. My son was better than me. And he was better than me in, uh, in almost every way. Um, the thing about Bo was, from the time he... My, my, another expression my dad had was, never complain and never explain. I never one single time, my word is abiding, ever, ever heard my child complain. When he was, when he was in that accident, lost his mom and his, uh, and his sister, uh, he was very badly injured, almost every bone in his body broken. He was in a cast from his ankles, both legs, his chest, his arms. I used to carry him around with a hook in his back. And my other son, Hunter, his best friend a year and a day younger, was uh, just about three and had a severe skull fracture. And he'd sit in a room in a hospital, and he'd turn and he'd say, Hunt. Look at me. Look at me. I love you. I love you. Four years old. Nothing changed. A couple months before he died, I was at his house, and uh, he said, Dad, sit down. I want to talk to you. With Howie, his wife, incredible kid. And he said, Dad, uh, I know how much you love me. He said, you got to promise me something. Promise me you're going to be all right. Because no matter what happens, Dad, I'm going to be all right. Promise me. This, this is a kid who... who I don't know what it was about him. He had this enormous sense of empathy. And I'm on the making this up. I know I maybe sound like a father. I hope I... Anyway, but, but, but it's it real. Like, it sounds like you love him, sir. Oh, jeez. I mean, I... Uh... So it's a, it's a great interview. Um, actually, they go from this point on, and they talk about the role that faith plays in Joe Biden's life and how that helped him get through... Tragedies, so you can you can look it up for yourself. But this, I think, is the hope of every parent that our children would surpass us. That Declan might take the best of me and be Brad 2.0, and not just have my chin, which of course I'm thrilled he does, but whatever my best cat, uh, characteristics, he would absorb and take to the next place. You know, uh, and when I fail, this is important too, that I could model and that we could model to our children and our friends humility 
so they can see that too. You know, one of the things I started, it's weird. I, I have this kid, I'm always talking to him like he can understand what I'm saying. Um, but one of the things I say to him probably every other week or so is, I'm going to mess up so bad. I'm sorry. I'm going to do everything I can to be there for you, but I know I'm going to blow it sometimes. And I'm going to do everything I can to try and make it right. But I'm going to mess up. You know, it's not just the good things about us we want to model. It's how we handle our failures. Because he's going to mess up sometimes, and I don't want what he's seen to be when you mess up, you try and hide it. Or you make excuses. Our kids, they can be more than us, better than us, 2.0 versions of us. If we model what we have, with humility. And finally, one more inspiration from Hannah. This is chapter, or verse 12. It says, she kept on praying to the Lord. And Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. I'm reading this because I don't even know how to capture all of this, but you read this story and life really isn't fair for Hannah. Part of it's the time and the day that she was born. You read this, it doesn't sound like women are super valued in this culture, does it? Kind of talked down to You know, even Hannah wants to have a son. Why? Because a woman alone without a son is very vulnerable. She's a son that takes care of mom when she gets old. So she's not even praying for a child. She has to pray for a son. How does that make women feel in that society? And as you read it, part of my guts sort of churn as I get more and more of the details of what she has to live with, how she's treated, how few options she has. But the thing I think we can take from this and learn from Hannah is that we can pray for what we need. You know, a lot of times you read these Old Testament stories, and the culture just seems uh, offensive in a lot of ways, honestly. And a lot of the Old Testament is just descriptive. It's not prescriptive, saying this is the way it should be. It's just this is the way it was. But if you pay attention to the details and you can miss it, Oftentimes, you'll find the person in the most vulnerable position is the one that God comes through for. You'll read a story, and you'll see all these details about things. You'll be like, what? You'll be thinking, wow, that sounds sinful, what that person's doing, or abusive, or whatever. And God lets a lot of things go in the telling of the story, per se. Not that there's not an accounting But when you find the person who's the most vulnerable, that's where you see God take action more often than not. Pray for what you need. As a parent, as a person, pray for what you need. Experience God's strength in your weakness. If the story is we will be weak, 
If the story is sometimes someone's going to let you down, if the story is at some point in your life you're going to be horribly disappointed, pray for what you need. Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, prayed. He asked for help. So this morning, I want to end the sermon today with an opportunity to pray for help. Because I don't know what's going on in your life. You might be in that season of first naivete, and God bless you, soak it all in. It's good, it's true. The God you're meeting in that moment is the real God. He is that good. Soak it in. You know, life will bring its troubles. You don't have to worry about bringing trouble on yourself. But a lot of you here this morning, I don't know what it is for you that is difficult, but probably almost everyone here has something. So let's just take a moment. We read a scripture earlier from Philippians that gives us some instruction on this. I'm going to have it projected behind me. Let's take a moment. Let's not just say, oh, yeah, in the story, it was good to pray and ask for what I need. Let's pray and ask for what you need. And today we're going to do it in a private way. You're not going to have to tell anybody. But that might be helpful afterwards because sometimes the way God wants to meet you is through other people. But let's today just reflect and pray and invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to meet us where we need it right now. So if you would, let's go old school. Go ahead and close your eyes. And if you want to, you don't have to. You can place your palms up and open. It's just a physical way to say, I'm open to you, Holy Spirit, but you don't have to. God's not limited by that, but sometimes it can be helpful. And what I want to do is read this passage to you and have a combination of me praying for you and silence and you praying in your heart. You notice when Hannah prayed in this passage, no one could hear what she was saying, but People can see your lips moving. So you don't have to even move your lips, but you can just pray right from your heart. Let me read the passage. There'll be some silence, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you or guide you a little. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So take a moment. Whatever is going on in your life, find one thing that's good. Take a moment to be thankful, just right now, between you and God and your own heart and your own mind. Kind act this week. The fact that you're alive. And out of that place, just call to mind 
the thing that troubles you the most in life right now. And just sit with it for a moment. You don't have to ask God to fix it, but just rest in the place of knowing the Lord is near. He's near. Now, as you sit in that place, ask God for your best take of what you think you need. Present that prayer, present that request, that petition. You may not have it right, you may not know what you need, but ask anyway. Let me pray for you. May the peace of God fill and overwhelm you now. May the peace of God, which is active, guard your heart, fight away the lies, the condemning thoughts, the panicked notions. May the peace of God that goes beyond the reality and transcend of your situation and transcends your understanding. Fill you with peace. May you find God in your place of need. May you see a change. May you be changed. But in the middle of the trouble, the trial, may you experience peace. Amen.